following podcast may contain spoilers. Emanating from the last video store in the universe, it's Binge Movies, episode 118. I'm Jason. This is the show that ranks and eliminates movies to determine which ones are worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. On this episode, we rank Stanley Kubrick. What kind of smug son of a bitch decides <laughs> he's going to rank Stanley Kubrick films? <laughs> Oh, man. In the same season, he just ranked video game movies of the 1990s. Oh, wow. We cover the full spectrum of film here at Binge Movies. That's not just some kind of a gimmick. We really, we really live it. Uh, and I am here with somebody who is, he's living the gimmick too. He lives the gimmick. I want you to introduce yourself because I, 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 I'm just going to lay out and I want you, listen, folks, this is the very first. Film critic, sure. Film aficionado, sure. Stanley Kubrick, Stan, absolutely. <laughs> Pro wrestling announcer? Yes. Slash Clevelander, <laughs> the very first other Northeast Ohioan to appear in this podcast, and very first wrestling announcer, it's Phoenix! Yeah! yeah. <laughs> Tell them who you are. Why? What's Why are you here? Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm here for three reasons. I'm here to talk movies, chew bubble yeah. gum, and kick ass. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Absolutely. <laughs> when you're not here, uh, when you're not in the Cleveland area talking to a guy in the Akron area, still via the internet, yes. even though we're 45 <laughs> minutes away from each other, um, what are you doing? Why, like, like you got a podcast? You got a blog? Like, tell, get your plug in, oh, man. Yeah. Tell these people oh, who yeah, the hell yeah. you are. Definitely <laughs> got to get my plugs in. Yes, uh, I am one of four uh, co-hosts for the Film Code podcast. We uh, drop an episode once every week. Usually, sometimes one episode, sometimes two episodes a week. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, we have a blog, Film Coders. Um, I'm also a member of the International Film Society Critics Association. Uh, so you may see our posts coming up uh, around there. And we, uh, you know, it's a whole host of critics from all over the world. And uh, we're getting ready. We're gearing up for our award season. So very exciting stuff. You are a legit film critic. Uh, yes, I like hearing that. <laughs> you are a pro wrestling announcer. Yes, sir. You are a Stanley Kubrick stan. Yes. You are a pod well, now I am. <laughs> you are a <laughs> podcaster. Mm-hmm. Are you my new best friend? I think so. <laughs> or, or how, how do they put it? Yep. Yep. Yeah. From stepbrothers. <laughs> yep. Just like that. Just, Just like kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> the Venn diagram between Phoenix and Jason, it, there's a lot of overlap there, man. Yeah. Yeah. So you can call me Jack or Dude. Or whatever you want to call me, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get through this. So, um, w listen, we could be here all night talking about Stanley Kubrick. We could be here all night talking about how great you are, uh, but we kind of got to choose. So, if we're going to be long winded, let's be long winded about uh, a guy who someone says the most influential uh, director of the twentieth century. 
I would Ugh. let me ask you an idiotic question straight off the bat. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick, have you heard of him? <laughs> yeah. What's your personal uh, history with a guy who made uh, some of the greatest movies ever? You know, right. Uh well, to be honest, and this is gonna make me sound uh like, you know, not as legit as you you made me sound, which is uh you know, until you asked me to be on here, I hadn't seen any Stanley Kubrick films. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big blind spot in my uh, film repertoire. So um, these five movies are the first five Stanley Kubrick films that I've seen. Uh, so quite the introduction, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> well, here's what's great about this is we this is a show where we we literally cover every you know, we like to say we're not a good movie podcast, we're not a bad movie podcast. The name of the show is Binge Movies. We literally binge movies across the full spectrum. We know what the film snobs say on film Twitter. We hear <laughs> we hear the conversations. We know what, you know, the film critics have to say. We know what AFI has to say. Every mm -hmm. we, we everybody's got their their rankings, their vaults, their criterion collections. Um we're trying to create uh, a people's canon. We're trying to create the DDP of film <laughs> fandom. We're trying to, we're, yeah, there we go. Absolutely. We're trying to, we're trying to create a people's canon that for for hardcore movie fans and and casual movie fans alike, uh, yes. but people who just like talking and thinking about movies. And so at the end of the season the best of the best of all of our episodes go up against each other in a little thing we like to call last movie standing. And uh, it's just that the last movie standing is what's voted on by our listeners. And that's what goes into our no copyright infringement intended vault to be preserved for all time. And uh, so we're, you're, you're in the right place to mm -hmm. get a baptism by fire for Stanley <laughs> Kubrick. So I am going to say this with very, a very lot of arrogance. Um, <laughs> I think one of the movie that I pick for this is definitely going to be the last film stand. Oh! I'm, just, I'm just putting that He's out there. He's calling his <laughs> Definitely calling it. it it's, it's, it's happening. Healer baby face. We'll let you decide, listener. Is Phoenix a heel or a baby face? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> that means he's a tweener. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I, I rock with the tweens. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Scratch that. <laughs> All right, without much further ado, I'm looking at my watch. I think it's about that time. It's time we get into our very first Stanley Kubrick film, 1953's Fear and Desire, which miraculously has a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. Waiting to kill. Waiting to heal. Waiting to die. One by one, the men turn black. And they were dead. And they Fear and Desire was directed by Stanley Kubrick. It was written by Howard Sackler. It was released April 1st, 1953 on a budget of between 40 and 53,000. Uh, <laughs> it 
the the box office is hidden from all time because it didn't do that great. Four soldiers find that danger can be found not only across enemy lines, but also in themselves. War sucks, and then you become the magician. <laughs> <laughs> Kubrick was 24 years old when he makes this. He quits his full-time job as a photographer for Look Magazine, which... If you're not 95 years old, you only know it from either your grandma's stories or a Christmas story. Uh, that's what Ralphie's <laughs> slipping the advertisement for the Red Rider BB gun into. It's a copy of Look Magazine. Um, he had done a couple of shorts, uh, one called Day of the Fight and the other called Flying Padre. Those had, were basically little documentary shorts about stuff that he had done photojournalism of for Look Magazine, some, some pieces, so he brought them to the screen. The screenwriter for this, actually, this is probably one of the more interesting things about this movie. <laughs> Howard Sackler, he goes on to write uh, The Great White Hope in 1969, oh, wins a Pulitzer Prize for that. But even more interesting for film fans is he writes Quint's USS Indianapolis speech from Jaws, like the thing that everybody's right. like, that's the best scene in the movie. <laughs> the guy who, I'll use this term loosely, wrote this movie uh, wrote that speech. So Kubrick himself is quoted as saying, it's not a film I remember with any pride except for the fact that it was finished. <laughs> and, and for years attempted to keep prints of the movie out of circulation. This is the first time I've ever seen this film. It, it, mm -hmm. He did not manage to keep it out of circulation. You can find a very bad colorized version of it on Tubi. And you can find the black and white version on Amazon Prime. Uh, so, uh, it's readily available. I'm sure it's on YouTube to me. Uh, this is a twilight zone movie without a twist or twilight zone episode rather without a twist. It's you keep waiting for there to be a twist and it doesn't really ever happen. What, what is this? Uh, <laughs> what did you think about? Let's start with you. This is your first time seeing it. First time seeing any Stanley Kubrick film. Right. I'm right. sorry. what do you think of fear and desire? I know, right? And uh, and I want to stress that I watched all of these movies in chronological order, and I and I felt like that was the best way to go because yep, uh, yep, you get an understanding of <clears throat> of Kubrick style that way. Yeah. Um. So jumping in with Fear and Desire, who <laughs> <laughs> you were like, oh, what did I sign up for? <laughs> right. I gotta say, I was like, this guy, th like this, this is the guy, like this is the the most influential filmmaker of all time. Really, this guy. <laughs> but uh, actually, after thinking about it, sitting on it, especially after finishing the filmography, I would say that this movie grew on me mm. a bit more mm. than. Then after I initially finished watching it, but the the thing that was uh, apparent was that this is very early young Stanley Kubrick, yeah, who hasn't really figured out his identity and what he wants to say or how he wants to say it. Yeah. So as a as a first go, you know, it's bad, yes, but you know, you just you see that there's budding tendencies that that will blossom later so that's the only thing about it i'm i'm right there with you i think that's exactly right i think that you see and there's another movie at least one more movie on this this list uh that he explores the exact same themes and it's one of the most yeah. famous war movies of all time so yes the, the issue with this movie is it's just like just literal the movie is called fear and desire and it's just about these 
guys, these soldiers who are presumed, I mean, they're from a nondescript country fighting right. a war against another nondescript country. Because uh, it's just in general about the idea of war and what war does to people and the dehumanization of war. And it's manifest in their fears and their desires. Mm -hmm. And that's it. <laughs> like, there's yeah. nothing really deeper than that. <laughs> it's just, uh, I, I, you know, you're from Cleveland. Mm -hmm. About two years ago, pre-COVID, I was at MOCA. I was at the uh, Metropolitan uh, or the Modern Museum of Art, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a guy on Father's Day. I was there on Father's Day who had clearly been dragged there by his wife <laughs> and children. And it was clearly right. mom's idea to go to the Modern Museum. Museum, Museum of Art, yeah, yeah, on Father's Day, and he clearly <laughs> gave no shits. Okay, right. And we watched a expressionistic film that was all about essentially uh, U.S. war crimes. Mm, every, every dad's wish on Father's Day, yes. <laughs> yeah. And he went around the museum the rest of the day, at least when we were together. Uh, of uh, uh, This is a complete stranger to me. He did this even in the gift shop going, war, bad, America, bad. We get it. <laughs> oh, wow. He literally had a venti Starbucks in his hand. Was dad jeans, boat shoes, oh, man. receding hairline, but still slicked back. Eddie, ba old, Eddie Bauer. Old dad vibe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my God. Clear, I, clearly a suburbanite who, right. if you asked him, would say, I come from Cleveland. But, but he's actually from Strongsville. But he's actually 100% <laughs> from Strongsville. Yes. Yeah. Uh, That's hilarious. If not. Uh, Brexville or even Hudson, which isn't even the right county. Oh God, it's not even the right county. <laughs> right. Um, this is all inside baseball. <laughs> um, his wife probably wears yoga pants five out of seven days a week. You, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. <laughs> He's going war bad, America bad. We get it. I'm not going to say that this guy didn't vote for a moral candidate. <laughs> But he probably didn't vote for the same people that I'm guessing I voted for, or probably right. you, right? Not not to yeah. go down that path, but there is a stupid way like that man that you could look at this movie and be like, "War bad, America bad." bad. <laughs> it was it was definitely in that very straightforward vein, <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is so funny because as we'll continue down the line, like obviously Kubrick gets a lot less straightforward yes. <laughs> but like this one bro he was just like you know and, and listen i've also you know made or tried to make films and i know what it's like when you have an idea and then you go in to execute it and it just doesn't come out the way that you thought it yeah. would and that that all of that is what i see in this film it's like Okay, you know, you see those aspects where you're like, oh, we're we're totally gonna do this, and then you realize, oh, we ain't got the budget for that. So yep. like, like here's we gonna have yep. to take that down a notch, and it's just it, it. You keep doing it multiple times throughout the filming, and all of a sudden you just end up with a very uneven, 
straightforward, yep. kind of kind of thrown together, do your best with, with what you got kind of movie. And that that's what this was. Yeah, if he didn't go on to become Stanley Kubrick, we're not talking about this movie. Not at all. <laughs> it doesn't exist anywhere, right? So <laughs> it's a low-budget film he made with college friends and friends of friends with yeah. money he borrowed from an uncle <laughs> to try to see if he could make a feature-length film. And then he hated it and tried to destroy it. <laughs> so there's not much more to say about it i you know if i had to give this thing a score out of 10 i'd give it a six out of 10 it's not good it's not, um i maybe i saw your reaction and that might be too low or too high i'm guessing you you put way lower than that which is fine was well, like when i uh <laughs> when i was younger yeah right yeah i used to uh i used to coach for a uh a, a, a poetry slam team and all of our scores were out of 10 nice and i got a reputation for being a hard ass a pretty harsh job <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, like yeah, i yeah. remember we yeah. were we were at national competition and i was giving things like fours and threes <laughs> and i had someone come over to me and goes hey listen man we really rarely don't give anything lower than a seven i was like a seven <laughs> well, I've been handing out 1.2 oh, since I was like, like, like to what? children, presumably. To children. Yeah. Like, so like, okay. So so for me, you know, I am sorry. Like I, I see everything that, that Kubrick wanted to say here. And and you know, eventually, thank God, he became who he became. But this this movie gets no passes from me. It sits at a three out of ten for me. Ah, uh, I can't. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't think I've, I. I think I buried the lead there, but it is definitely in my last place. Yeah, on, I, on my list. I can't say that I disagree with you. I can't <laughs> say that I disagree with you. Uh, yeah, it's worst of the week for me too, right? So it's, yeah. it's number five. Uh, I we're we're just cutting it straight off the top, but and honestly, we're honoring the spirit of the man because he would be like. Get this the fuck off the list. Exactly. <laughs> so we're, exactly. We're going to. So let's move on to a movie that now I'm real interested <laughs> in what you have to say. This is a first for me as well, by the way. This next right. film is 1960s epic Spartacus, which currently sits at a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Nine Roman armies have been destroyed by Spartacus. And our defeat will mean the fall of Rome. Spartacus, a motion picture unequaled in the entire history of filmmaking, unlikely ever to be surpassed in the magnitude of production, in the fervor and passion of its conflict, in the tenderness and beauty of its love story. Nothing was spared to make Spartacus the superb achievement it is. Neither time, nor money, nor talent. For in Spartacus, you will see the finest cast ever assembled relive history's most exciting and inspiring drama. Starring Kirk Douglas as Spartacus, slave, gladiator, invincible fighter. Laurence Olivier as Crassus, symbol of Rome's majesty and might. I'm not after glory. I'm after Spartacus. Simmons as the slave Arinia, whose body was bought and sold, but whose love enveloped Spartacus with a radiance few men have known. I love you, I love you. 
Charles Lawton as Gracchus, the leader of the Roman Senate. Peter Ustinov as Batiatus, shrewd and devious dealer in human flesh. John Gavin as Julius Caesar, ambitious staff officer. And Tony Curtis as Antoninus, who loved Spartacus like a brother. In the powerful story of the gladiator rebel who sprang from slavery to challenge the awesome might of Imperial Rome. The symbol of the Senate, all the power of Rome. I imagine a god for slaves. And I pray. What do you pray for? I pray for a son who will be born free. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, of course. It's a screenplay by Dalton Trumbo. That name's probably familiar to you. We'll get get to that in a second. It is based on Spartacus by Howard Fast. It was released October 6, 1960. On a budget of $12 million, it made $60 million at the box office. It was nominated for six Oscars, won four. Best Actor and Supporting Role for Peter Ustinov, Best Cinematography and Color, which, I mean, that's... Talk about that. Russell <laughs> Meddy, best art direction, set direction, color films, because black and white movies were still a thing. Right. Uh, best costume design for color films. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's, uh, how do you summarize Spartacus? Uh, a Roman slave leads a revolt against the empire and its power-hungry leaders as the fall of the Republic begins. Turns out slavery was never really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Right. Um, <laughs> the history here, man, Kirk Douglas was the producer of the film. Yes. He approached Kubrick to direct because they had just worked together on a film called Paths of Glory, another war movie. And then uh, I don't know if he lived to regret that because the two clashed over the script throughout the production and Kubrick removed all but two of Douglas's speaking lines of dialogue for the, out of the first 30 minutes of the movie. And during the crucifixion scene, left him on the cross for hours. Oh, my God. Until he was genuinely suffering Uh. because he didn't believe his performance. He was like, if you're going to be on a cross, you got to be close to death. And speaking of the script, uh, this was written by screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, who was blacklisted actually at the time as one of the Hollywood 10, Google that kids. Uh, actually, Douglas publicly announced Trumbo was the screenwriter, using his megastar clout at the time to try to you know sway the public and end this blacklisting bullshit that was going on in the country. And the only thing that really turned the tide was actually a JFK crossed an American Legion picket line to go see the movie. And the book itself, Howard Fast book, was also blacklisted at the time and had to be self-published because no publisher would touch it because it was considered uh, uh, apparently communist to say slavery (laughs) is bad. Yeah. (laughs) Who would have thought? (laughs) So a lot of people put a lot on the line to even make this movie, which seems weird now Mm -hmm. because it is... Well, let's start with you. Before we get into my thoughts, I saw your reaction when we when we got to Spartacus. You tell me what you think. Well, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, make it seem like I'm I'm 
like in I don't I didn't hate this movie. In fact, I actually quite liked it. Um just 90 93% like really? <laughs> okay. But, you know, whatever. But <laughs> but uh yeah, no, I really actually like this film. Um and knowing everything that went into making it. Yeah. Uh makes it sound you know, makes it sound way more profound <laughs> and special and unique than it actually is. It's yeah. an epic. I I will give them that. It is an epic. And I think it's actually a lot more culturally relevant uh, today, if you know anything about our current yes. political atmosphere. Yes. Uh, so, like, there were parts of it, you know, this this movie was, what, 1960? Yeah. There, yeah, there are parts of this film that, you know, really, I think, resonate with a current generation who is seeing the faults of capitalism and, and things of that nature. So, yep. I, I really found a lot of things to connect to it. And... Uh, and genuinely like it, despite its extraordinary length, <laughs> which is one of those things that that kind of scared me away from it. But I'm actually glad that I tough tough through it, got through it, and and got a really great story out of it. I think the thing that really shocked me was that you know hearing about Kubrick and and knowing that this is one of his films seems so strange to me. Yes, like the idea of Kubrick and this film just don't seem like they would go together. This is essentially the last movie he makes where he doesn't have complete control. Yes. Yeah. This is, we want Cecil B. DeMille, but we want a young guy to do Cecil B. DeMille, basically. Mm -hmm. And so we, and, and it's, the movie sometimes feels almost like it's at odds with itself. Mm -hmm. Because you can definitely tell that Kubrick is like, especially in the the second part mm-hmm. or he's pushing this into a dark place yeah he definitely wants to go darker yes yeah and then the movie like constantly you feel that studio or the expectation or whatever pulling it back into mainstream hollywood epic whatever mm-hmm. this is three hours and 17 minutes long <laughs> the first half is all scale, right? It's it's right. It's it's all size. It's scale. It's the story. It is Ridley Scott stole so much of it to make Gladiator. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> the first half of this movie is just basically Gladiator, right? Right. Um, down to the guy who's like, let's not become friends because we'll have to kill each other. And you're like, wait, right. wait a minute, I've seen all this. <laughs> <laughs> um. Then the second half, well, actually leading into the second half, right before intermission, mm-hmm. it starts to actually get pretty political. Yeah. And I'm going to say this as a white guy. Uh, only white people could have made this in 1960. Oh, of course. <laughs> and, they, and they were barely able to get it made. <laughs> right? They were blacklisted. Right. And, like, the president had to cross a picket line. <laughs> For the, to get this movie released, which right. is insane, because it's yeah. Kirk Douglas, <laughs> who I think is Hungarian, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, I mean, who's that's a you got Lawrence Olivier, right, yeah, right. like yeah, this Charles is, Lawton, like yeah, this, this is, is a Lily White cast. movie. This is a Lily <laughs> White movie of A-list actors, right? Who almost destroyed their careers to make a movie. That was like, 
capitalism is messed up and slavery <laughs> is awful and it should right. end, right? Inequality is bad. And the country was like, we got to ban this. We got to put a stop to this. <laughs> and so I think that, to your point, though, I think it's easy to sit in like 2021, 2022, yeah. younger, way younger, and just kind of get like, in a weird way, like the movie's progressive, but it doesn't feel know, right? progressive anymore. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm like, it it was really progressive for 1960. This was absolutely it was classified as leftist. <laughs> if if the term existed, they would have called Spartacus woke. Uh, yeah, totally. totally. And we're like, you you can't see that. They're they hate America. America. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And now, like, now you watch it. It's just like a three hour and 17 minute Hollywood epic. Right. Well, you know, and there's there's stuff in there where you're like, okay, I don't think you need that. Like, <laughs> like, like, like they spend like the first 15 minutes just <clears throat> playing the score, like the, the score of the actual movie as it's yes. going on. They play the whole thing yes. in the beginning. And it's like, why would, why? Like, you know, that's a relic of the time. That, yes. And I get that. And I'm so glad that is gone. Because <laughs> holy cow, having to sit through 15 minutes of the score before the movie even starts. Well, you know, I mean, you know this, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, but for those people who don't know our listeners, you're right. It's a relic of the time because yeah. this is a movie that would have played at a theater palace. Yes. There are no multiplexes. There are giant palace theaters right and you probably would have actually had the 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 uh instruments there Bingo. The artists actually yes. playing that yeah if not from the studio locally that theater would have they had orchestra pits like you know like Absolutely. it's in yeah and the, an orchestra would be there and as you're walking in and getting your seats and and by the way you would have dressed up to go to the theater you yeah, would absolutely. have put on your whatever nice 1960s madman suit mm -hmm. and you would have gone to the theater and you would have dressed up and you would have watched it and orchestra would have played. And it, it was a, especially for this type of film, they wanted to present it as much as a theatrical experience. And I mean, like today what musicals, Broadway, that kind of thing is, that's what these sort of movies were presented as. Mm-hmm. And so I think in a weird way, the audience probably would have been disappointed if they didn't, have if that, they yeah. didn't, have <laughs> and if it wasn't long and if it wasn't an epic. Right. Right. And now we're just, we, you know, I'm guessing we're fairly close in age. We're the cable generation. We're the right. DVD VHS streaming generation. Streaming. Mm -hmm. So it's like 90 minutes. <laughs> get in. <laughs> say what you gotta say, get out. Right. <laughs> Right. This movie is. I got. I got seventeen of the movies to watch today. <laughs> yeah, so you right. know, so, right. at ninety minutes, this movie isn't even halfway over. No. <laughs> even though it's blacklisted, it ends up becoming a hit. It's the highest-grossing film of that year. Uh, it is the v Variety at the time said Kubrick has outdemilled Demille. Mm. The Los Angeles Times, the Times said, here young director Stanley Kubrick gives notice that from now on he's definitely to be reckoned with. He, his use of the camera and handling of people are, are very effective and skillful. I get that. I get that more in the second half. I think the second half of this movie is really fantastic. The second half of this movie, I think, 
you know, oftentimes we hear of studio interference in movies and it ends up ruining the movie. Yeah. You know, when you just don't let a director really fulfill his vision. Now, I'm sure in 1960, that's definitely how Stanley Kubrick felt. Yeah. However, watching it now, I kind of feel like maybe they were closer in vision than they, they realized because this feels like a steady movie through all the way throughout. And it's yeah. a three hour film. So it feels really controlled, really concise. Doesn't feel like it's like we'll talk about in later films where it's it's like one half is one thing and the other half is another. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So yeah. so like I get I get that. And I, I guess he had an issue with the uh, with the interference, but it, it actually turned out pretty well, I would think, for this film. What this movie does that's really interesting is we all know like the three act structure, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of act two you have your hero at their lowest point. That's the valley where they try to overcome the, the antagonist or the obstacle or the conflict and they fail. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, we, we build back up towards our resolution and the hero has to rediscover themselves. And we go in the third act and finally <laughs> the thing is resolved. This movie, the, the end of the second act ostensibly before we go into intermission is the height of Spartacus's power as a soldier, as a political leader, as a lover, right? Like he's got the woman there. She's going to have his kid. He's, they've gone through the Roman empire and collected a slave army of people who are, who are throwing off the shackles of slavery to join him. He's, you know, and they just wouldn't be left alone and they just want to go off and basically form their own, equal society somewhere else somewhere and just be out of the grasp of the empire. The empire comes to him and is like, Hey, we're going to kill you. Uh, (laughs) Go back to being slaves or you're going to die. And Spartacus and his whole group are like, "Uh, if, if anybody who tries to stop us, we're going to kill him. (laughs) So you tell Caesar and you tell (laughs) the Republic, whoever you got to, that if they send anybody after us, we're killing every last one of them. Yep, pretty much. Right? And you're like, <laughs> yeah! There's triumphant, there's triumphant music, and when we come back from intermission, <laughs> everything goes to shit. Yes. Which is yeah. not a traditional way, especially in 1960. Mm-hmm. This is pre-New Hollywood. That right. these sort of stories are supposed to go. If you've <laughs> never seen Spartacus, here's the spoiler. Everybody he loves, except for his wife and his child, die. Yeah. The <laughs> slaves do not win. <laughs> the empire wins. Right. And Spartacus has to kill his, his spiritual son, his protege, right. another young slave who he has adopted as his own and has become a father figure to. And they're. They have to decide between who we're going to make you fight each other. Mm-hmm. The, lo- Whoever, the loser yeah. dies right now. <laughs> right. The winner gets crucified. What, what kind of choice is that? <laughs> and I was, I'm going to be honest with you. I was stunned that that was in this movie. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the opposite of a underdog, you know, come from behind yeah. <laughs> kind of story. You know what I'm saying? They, they do have the rebellion, and you're like, yes, you know what I'm yep. saying? You feel all of that, and, and it's great. And like you said, once we come back from intermission, it's a totally different 
vibe. It's like, yeah, you know, and they have a chance. And even though they tell you in the beginning, like, you know, slavery doesn't end for another 2,000 years, you're still like, I don't know, somehow maybe the three-hour runtime makes you go, <laughs> oh, I, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, right. but, like, <laughs> but like, yeah, like, bro, they, they get stopped, and they get stopped in the most brutal way possible, and it's it's brutal, bro. Like, it's like it's a really brutal. harsh thing to endure because you're like, wow, like, here's a character I've, I've been following this entire time, and, and yep. you, you believe that they'll succeed, at, yep. or at least at some point, some of them will succeed. Yes. You know, maybe maybe not all of them, but you know, a few, maybe even just Spartacus and his family, they they survive. No, you don't get that either. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, and the movie ends, and I mean total spoilers here, but the movie ends <laughs> with the, the the one of the senators who is been kind of has his own story going on in the behind the scenes. Right. Um basically uses the last of his wealth and power mm -hmm. right before the first Caesar is appointed to get Spartacus's wife and Peter Yusinov as Badius out mm -hmm. of Rome to get them safe passage, but he can't save Spartacus. It's too late for that. It's too late. Yeah. And he can't save himself. And he tells them, Oh, I'm going to go to this other town and I'm going to go. And they're like, well, that's a dump. Why don't you come with us? And he's like, no, 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 just get out of here. Go on. And then he grabs a dagger and they walk off and he goes and he kills himself uh -huh. because he knows if he stays uh, or tries to escape that they're going to kill him. Yeah. And then it ends with them leaving town and Spartacus is on a cross. Yeah. And, and she's not like she It's the only chance he gets to see his son. Uh-huh. The first and only time is as he dies on a cross. And it ends with her begging. She just begging. just die. Just yeah. die. Because she doesn't want him to suffer anymore. And here is what has to be Kubrick. <laughs> they, they're, he's like, Yusinov is like, we got to get out of here or they're going to catch you on and we're going to die. Mm -hmm. They finally leave in their, in their, with their horse and carriage and they finally get out with her chariot and the movie the, the camera sort of pans out and we see a street lined with crucified with slaves crucified. jesus <laughs> and we never and spartacus isn't dead he's still right. suffering on the cross as the movie ends yes which is an incredibly powerful statement right mm -hmm. that he's not liberated from slavery in a sense, he has. He's liberated himself. Right. But he's not truly liberated from the empire. And I don't want to go like real film nerd on you, but let's just go for it. We're talking about Kubrick. The statement this movie makes that it's an enslaved man who, as far as we know, as long as this film exists, is still suffering on that cross. Right? That is making a statement about permanence of injustice i think oh yes oh yes and, and i mean you know I, I like i said i have i hate to refer back to this point but like i get it where the studio's interference is is probably clashing with kubrick's vision yeah however i mean so much of that is is beautifully told it is it is done in this really epic grand scale yeah 
you feel it like the emotions are there it's like you know what i'm saying like me personally these are mostly white characters in in roman times they really don't resonate with me yep. like you know what i'm saying it's not going to not going to click for me but you know the themes are there and the themes are so strong and they're so realized and so visualized that I'm like, okay, yeah, I can totally see that. And, you know, at the, the moment that truly broke me <laughs> in, in, in this film is when, um, oh God, I'm choking up just even thinking about it, mm. but, uh, <laughs> like, uh, they, they lose the war half, like almost all of their men are, are dead or devastated. And, uh, he asks, you know, if you turn over Spartacus, the rest of you can yep. leave with your lives. You know, you'll go back to slavery. And Spartacus goes to stand up, and everybody else stands up and goes, "I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus." And it's like a chorus, and I'm like, "Oh, come on!" Yeah. <laughs> By command of His Most Merciful Excellency, your lives are to be spared. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! 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 And one of my favorite movies of uh was the last year, I believe, was uh Trial of the Chicago Seven. Yep. And the final scene in the courtroom is is of him naming all the soldiers that they lost in Vietnam. And immediately, as soon as I as I saw that scene in, in Spartacus, I thought of Trial of Chicago. So I was like, "Oh, I see where you get this from." Like, yep. what's the what's the saying? Good artists borrow, great artists steal. Yep. Like, yes, totally stolen. But if you're gonna steal, you steal from the greats, and that that is an amazing scene in that movie. Yeah, it's the thing that it, uh, I've talked about this before in the podcast. When when a scene becomes so iconic. Mm-hmm that it just becomes a part of the zeitgeist. And before you even get a chance to see the movie, you've absorbed it just through osmosis of just being alive in the culture. Yeah. Sometimes it loses its resonance because you're like, I've seen this scene so many times without seeing the movie. By the time I get to the movie, it's like, ah, not that big of a deal. You've seen the clip of I am Spartacus. You've seen the parodies (laughs) of I am Spartacus. You've seen the Simpsons do I am Spartacus. Mm -hmm. You have not seen I am Spartacus Mm -hmm. until you've seen Mm -hmm. Spartacus. Spartacus. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's the heart of their rebellion. It, like, their last gasp of rebellion. Yep. Because they've been defeated. They know they'll lose. They know that it's over for them. And they can save their, their at least lives. Yeah. Of course, they'll go back into slavery. Yep. But they can still save their lives. Yep. And they say, no, I'll, I'll take death. <laughs> yep. I'll take death. And, and that's their last gasp of of protest and it's such a strong and powerful moment because especially you know if like at that point i hadn't seen the end yeah 
But, you know, now thinking about the ending and I'm like, and you mentioned that pan out of all of them crucified along the road. And it's like, do you have any idea how how serious that sacrifice was? Yeah. Like, like, that's insane. So, like, for me, it was just like, yeah, top notch, hands down, great stuff. Yeah, And I think that when that ties back in to the movie doesn't end with even our hero, the title character. Right. Even getting relief in death, which is what his wife, the mother of his child, is begging for. Mm-hmm. Just die. Just die. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't even get that. He is still suffering as the mo- the movie closes. I cannot, I don't know if there's another movie where the character, it ends with your main character just suffering. Yeah. Not dying. Yeah. I'm not, not even dying a heroic, tragic sad death we've seen that movie right we've seen that movie a million times this may be the only movie i've ever seen where it just ends where he's the the (laughs) hero is still being tortured right which is i i you know i i don't want to i could be wrong but that to (laughs) me that feels like that is radical kubrick yeah that's probably what pissed some of these people off (laughs) right yeah i mean it's in in itself it's defiant yes you know what i'm saying it's like saying we're we're not gonna give you the 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 as as hollywood epic of a movie as this is we're not gonna give you the hollywood ending we're not gonna give you the roses and flowers or you know the sweet send off like no we're talking about slavery in roman times like it, it it can't end pretty so yeah. if that's if that's what he argued for, then great on him, bro, because it was it was a really powerful argument. And just and it worked out. And just because we're not slaves anymore mm-hmm. doesn't mean we're not still suffering and dying. Good. Yes. Good allegory. Good allegory. I like it. And I <laughs> I just have to imagine that that pissed a lot of white people off. <laughs> this is 1960. We are right. on the verge of the civil rights movement. Right. As we know right. it. I mean, civil rights, have been, that's the movement that already existed. But as right. we know it, it's what's in our textbooks. It's right at our doorstep. Right. You know, this is the, and, and good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. I'm not a, usually a big fan of remakes. And mm. we knowing it's impossible in 1960. Unfortunately. Right. Would this movie could this movie be remade with a cast of people of color? At least some olive people, because it's Rome. <laughs> right, right. Um, that would be a tough one. That would be a tough cookie, because I just... I, you, you'd have to have con- cojones the size of Texas. Uh, like, yeah, I'm remaking uh, Spartacus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, they did do a remake of it, but they pretty much kept the casting uh, pretty much the same. And and yeah, I just, I don't, I could see it, but I'm not sure I'd want to. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. not a necessary movie, I think, that needs to be made. Would this movie have been more powerful if in 1960 it was a cast of people of color? No. <laughs> no. Unfortunately, it's it's a it's a historic thing, but uh, you know our stories typically aren't heard by the greater uh, audience. So sometimes you need people of that audience to 
speak those stories. So, so I think you it think, only comes across that way, the way it is. So you think if they had, and again, this is all hypothetical because we know real history. Right. You think if that they had tried to incorporate more people of color in this movie, it, you, do you think it would not be the success and iconic film that it is just simply because white audiences would have even more rejected it? I think it would still be a success. I think it, it no doubt about it. The screenplay is just too strong. Kubrick's direction is fantastic. Yeah. I think it definitely would have still held up, but I think the response to it uh would not have been as successful. What it was hmm. 12 million budget, 60 million made. That goes down a few million just because of that. Right. Yeah. You need so so you're what you're saying is you need Hollywood su- at this time, 1960. Yeah, you need Hollywood superstar Kirk Douglas putting his career on the line. Yep, to make the movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, uh, if you had to give this film Spartacus a score out of ten, what would you give it, and where does it rank for you? I thought I'd be higher, but I, I, I'm sticking with an eight out of ten for Spartacus. Uh, it is currently fourth on my list. It's fourth on my list as well. I'm actually coming in lower than you, which is a surprise. Wow. It's a seven out of 10. I thought the first half dragged a little bit mm-hmm. right around until about 15 minutes before intermission. And then I thought the second half was, was pretty much, uh, it was just great. Like yeah. everything you said, I mean, it just, it just, everything came together. It's, it's, I can't repeat what you said better than you said it. So just listen to Phoenix. And uh, <laughs> if you haven't checked out Spartacus, uh, give it a watch. Give it a watch. Absolutely. So, all right. Let's move on to. <laughs> now, I'm so curious about what you think about all these movies. Oh man. Did, we're, we're now we're in Kubrick Unleashed. Yes, completely, <laughs> completely unleashed. <laughs> 1964's <laughs> Doctor Strangelove, which currently has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. (laughs) Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. Well, let me finish, Dimitri. A big plane, like a 52 room. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. No more than 10 to 20 million killed. Tops. Why didn't you tell the world, eh? Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? This is his screenplay. Now he's writing the shit. With Stanley Kubrick, Terry Southern, Peter George. It's based on a book called Red Alert by Peter George. We'll get into that. It was released January 29th, 1964 on a budget of $1.8 million. It makes $9.4 million in North America. This is, uh, according to AFI, this is the 39th greatest American film and third greatest american comedy wow 
U.S. officials attempt to stop a nuclear strike in subsequent atomic holocaust ordered by an unhinged U.S. general and hilarity ensues. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So the full title of this movie is Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And... (laughs) I added, or how I learned how the Russians were turning the friggin' frogs again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Can we? Okay, we're three movies deep, right, in this guy's <laughs> filmography. Uh-huh. Can we just say, this guy doesn't like the government. <laughs> and it, this uh, guy is not standing for the anthem, no, right? No, like, <laughs> man. No, not yeah. at all. Yeah. Oh, man. This is basically, I'm really surprised this was ever released in the U.S. (laughs) This movie could not have been put in theaters before 1964. No. Because this entire thing is a fuck you to the U.S. military. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Not not just the U.S. military. Basically, the concept of militarism. Yes. Industrial military complexes. Mutual assured destruction. He buys the rights. Kubrick buys the rights to a genuine, straightforward, non-satirical, <laughs> political thriller. Intends to make a serious film out of it and then goes, you know what? <laughs> Fuck that. I'm going to make an absolutely batshit insane, Ugh. up, totally absurd. <laughs> I, I, I... Yes, yes. <laughs> Whatever word you're searching for is correct. Yes. <laughs> he uh. shoots it in 15 weeks, Phoenix. <laughs> then he takes eight months to edit it. He has Peter Sellers play three Rose. different roles, including a Nazi. <laughs> who is working for the U.S., but can't stop saluting oh Hitler. Oh, my God. It's the funniest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. I swear to God. Like, and, like, the funny thing was, like, the entire movie. Like, it, this is billed as a black comedy. And, oh, I, yeah. and I totally saw it. And I'm like, but I didn't laugh. I was like, I was like, this just seems so stupid. What are they doing? And right. then when it came to Dr. Strangelove, like, like yes, uh, my friend. I mean, Mr. President. I was like, I was in tears. <laughs> I'm like, what on earth is this? Like, like all of a sudden, everything became clear. It was like, oh my god, this is a joke. <laughs> like, yeah, this oh is yeah. a joke. Oh wow! Just it's... the fact that they get George C. Scott <laughs> and the direction he kept giving George C. Scott was bigger, big, bigger. <laughs> so there's a point in which he's got ten packs of gum in his mouth. <laughs> It is so broad and it's so big. While he's like climbing out of bed with a bikini right. lady oh my God. who is not his wife. Yes. All and, of it. And just all of the president's a fucking Peter Sellers is the president, is a fucking idiot. The phone call he has with oh the, the, the Russian That's the best. <laughs> well, of course I like you. Well, yes. <laughs> 
I was like, well, you know, we're both capable of being as sorry as the other one. Like, I'm like, oh, oh my God, just no, tears. You are, yeah, you and are special well. to me. You are. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, you could pick up the phone and you could call me from time to time. No, I am sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I said I was sorry. Uh, are you? Are, are you, you sorry? sorry? <laughs> and the fact that you know, it's just, it's just uh, him. There's nobody on the other I know, right? right? You know? uh, it's so. Right before <laughs> utter annihilation. This is a movie about the end of the world. Oh my god. Peter it's... Sellers is miraculously healed right. by the ghost of Hitler <laughs> and gets out of his wheelchair. That is amazing. And, I was like, Oh my god. I'm like, wait, wasn't he in a wheelchair? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. It was it was so funny. And I mean like so many so many incredible quotable lines. I mean, what did he say? Uh it's like you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Like Jeff, what? This is the war room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't uh, fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. The entire concept. Okay. The line that got me, but the entire concept, the whole scene where they talk about the doomsday machine. <laughs> and he goes, well, of course, the whole point of a doomsday machine is lost if you keep it a secret. Why didn't you tell the world, eh? <laughs> we were going to announce it on Monday. But it's bringing out the utter absurdity of mutual assured destruction. If we just, <sighs> right? <clears throat> We're in the throes of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. We are in, this is the arms race. This is the nuclear arms race. And the idea is if we just stockpile as many nukes as possible on both sides, right. nobody has to die, which, which is a darkly absurd idea. Yes, yes. And I mean, like, and it's further explored in the scene where the general is explaining the, the level of casualties. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must. But I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murder since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. General Turgeson, I think I've heard quite sufficient from you. Thank you very much. Mr. President, they have the ambassador waiting upstairs. Oh, good. Any difficulty? They say he's having a fit about that squad of MPs. Yes, well, that can't be helped. Have him brought down here straight away. Yes, sir. Is, it, is that the Russian ambassador you're talking about? Yes, it is, General. Uh, am I to understand the Russian ambassador is to be admitted to entrance to the, the war room? That is correct. He is here on my orders. I, I don't know exactly how to put this, sir, but are you aware of what a serious breach of security that would be? I mean, you'll see everything. You'll you, you see the big board. And he, you know, he's just like, you know, very lackadaisically, you know, just yeah, like, yeah. like, yeah, we're, you know, 10 to 20 million tops. That'll be best. Like, what? Yeah, like, yeah. you're talking about 20 million lives, bro. Like, they're disposable. Like, it well, was. It, it's hilarious because he keeps adding. He's like, you know, 5 million, 5 million people. <laughs> are The casualties will probably. Well, you know, 10 million, 10 million is a likely scenario, Mr. Right. President. 20, 20 million, million tops. A small price to pay yeah, for right. freedom, Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, and the funny part about it is like 
yes, it's done in this sort of absurdist kind of parody of a way. But at the same time, I'm sitting, I'm watching it, and I'm like, you know, I know he's making fun of them. (laughs) But I kind of can't help but think that this is exactly how they think. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like if you're in that war room, you're in that situation, or even when, you know, it comes to situations of war, period. I'm sure, like, these are the thoughts that that come across a lot of people's minds is, you know, what's our level of casualties? What's an acceptable amount of casualties for this war? You know what I'm saying? Because they'll all be be fine. But, you know, know, we're talking about protecting our legacies and and all of that while, you know, millions upon millions of people could, you know, could die for our own arrogance. And it's just like... And it's done in this blackly dark humor way, but like I was watching, I was like, "This is scary, bro!" <laughs> like, like you know, they have these conversations, man. Well, we now live in a world where our, for better or for worse, our leaders are on social media. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see just how fucking stupid they all are. <laughs> I don't mean. And what you realize is, if anything. These guys underestimated how fucking stupid these people oh are. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you know that these conversations have happened. Absolutely. We live in a world where the president wanted to nuke a hurricane. <laughs> For real. For real. <laughs> as, as if it worked. Like we, are, we live in a world where he asked us to drink bleach. <laughs> During a global pandemic, and asked if sunshine could cure us on national television. Uh, like that's, what, if, that's, what if we injected bleach into our lungs, <laughs> like kind of like a cleansing? You could see Peter Sellers asking that question. That and the and the way that those sycophants in real life are like, whoa, well, we'll have to look into that, Mr. President. Exactly, exactly. And this that, movie. This movie, like, you know, in 1964, you could argue that this movie is ahead of its time. It's a, Oh, it's absurd. Right. It's absurd. Yeah, in right. 2021, you're yeah. watching it like, why did Stanley Kubrick make a documentary? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, oh, my God. Like, because, I mean, yes, is it absurd? Yes, are they playing on, on tropes and, and, you know, sort of making fun of these things? Like, they're making fun of them as if they could never happen. And yeah. that's the funny part where it's like, if you only lived <laughs> long enough to see 2021, yeah. you, you'd be like, oh, I got to make that movie over again. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this movie, I don't do this very often, despite what you probably think about me. <laughs> this is a 10 out of 10. Wow. This movie is perfect. Yeah. Because it's dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the general commits suicide and Peter Sellers has to do pratfalls trying to get into the bathroom <laughs> over his corpse. Oh, man. I Seriously, could you imagine being in 1964 and <laughs> taking your wife to the theater and be like, let's go see the latest. This, this guy directed Spartacus. Yeah, right. Let's go see the follow-up to Spartacus. <laughs> and it's this. Oh, you'd be in for such a shock. Like, what is this? What oh. is this? 
the guy from Paths of Glory <laughs> and Spartacus. It'd be like John Favreau being like, I just made the Jungle Book, and I'm going to follow it up with a complete takedown of the U.S. government. Right, exactly. Like, yeah, it's like, all right, that Disney money's great, but you know, you know what's great? Incisive takedowns of the American government. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you imagine how many people went to see this movie? Like, well, J- Patton's in this. George C. Scott's in this. And, it, and they're having food fights. And fucking Slim Pickens is riding the topic. <laughs> and the movie ends with the end of the world. <laughs> totally. And, like, and I didn't realize. Like, I had to read a few reviews after I watched it. Yeah, and I didn't realize all of the wild and 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 almost like in your face <laughs> blatant sexual innuendo <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that Stanley Cooper was putting in this movie. I mean, dude goes down with the missile right in between his legs. You know, what I'm saying I'm, oh, like, yeah. I'm like, what on earth? Like, it's just so it's so ridiculous and so flamboyant and so just out there and it's this has got to be one of the first instances of showing something absolutely horrific like total yes annihilation with one of the most sweet upbeat songs (laughs) you see absolute atomic devastation and it's we'll meet again (laughs) don't know where don't know where But we'll meet again oh, some sunny day. day. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Which means if anybody lived, right, it's going to be ten thousand years <laughs> be- before we can be on the surface of the Earth again. And it's just like it. This is the this is some wild shit, and, and I loved. And and I thought what was really funny was like. Okay, they're discussing all of these random, improbable situations of what to do if, you know, the bomb drops. Meanwhile, the bomb is dropping. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, why are we discussing this? Like, we got, it's in the air. Like, there's something you have to do. Like, and it's just like they're sitting there and they're just talking about it. And they're talking about, what they'll do with the women and children and like yes. how they'll plan for what happens next. And dude is literally yeah. like uh, uh, the general, I can't remember his name. Uh, you know, one who's popping gum all the time. Yeah. You know. Buck, uh, general Buck. Uh, God, what was his name? General. It's an innuendo, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, Turgidson, Turgidson. Yeah, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah. I didn't even catch Buck, that. Yeah, Buck Turgidson. <laughs> Buck Turgidson. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, how the censors let this let this through, right? George C. Scott is playing Buck Turgidson. <laughs> and is introduced like just got done fucking. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much, you know. And that's the only thing he's concerned about. The world's ending. He's on the phone with his mistress. Oh, baby, I love you. No, 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 I do love you. I'll be back in. I'll be back in. Go to sleep. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Do you love me, baby? Are you going to wear something nice for me? The world's ending. The world is ending. And that's the thing, like, that's the thing I can't get over. It's like, like, we're, we're, you guys are planning situations for afterwards. It even ends with him, like, arguing, like, we can't. 
allow the Russians to have their own. Like, you're like, what are you talking about? The world yep. is ending, bro. Like, what are you doing? So, like, it's just, it's amazing to me. Like, it truly is amazing to me. Uh, it's it's one of the funniest, funniest movies I've, I've ever seen. <laughs> it just, as a dark comedy, it, it is ridiculous what they did. Ridiculous. I mean, it, it truly is. So I, it's a 10 out of 10 for me. It's my number one of the week. I'm adding it to the short list. Tell me where this lands for you. I wish, I wish I could say this was my number one, but, oh. but yes, a movie, a movie beats it. It is my number two. I'm putting it at 8.5 out of 10, uh, but it is, it is up there. I mean, it's an amazing film, but for now it is my number two. Okay. All right. It's <laughs> time to move on. I mean, if you think that's off the rails, <laughs> it's time to go to 1971's A Clockwork Orange, which currently has an 87%. This has a threesome set to Mozart at high speed. Yes. And that's the least crazy thing that happens in this movie. Ugh. <laughs> uh. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. <laughs> Go on, do me in your cars. <laughs> He's enterprising, aggressive, young, bold, vicious. You are to be performed. What exactly is the treatment here going to be then? Just going to show you some film. But enough of words. Action speak louder than action now. It's funny how the colors of the real world only seem really real when you video them on a screen. <laughs> I'm cured! Praise God! You're not cured yet, boy. Of course, it's directed by Stanley Kubrick with this screenplay by Stanley Kubrick. Oh, God, it is it based. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's based on a Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. It was released uh, on the 19th of December, 1971, in New York City on a budget of 1.3 million. This movie's accumulated box office is 114 million dollars. Wow. A dystopian delinquent undergoes sadistic behavior modification under a totalitarian government seeking to redeem him, but they fail. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh! what did I put? Oh, how to stop a rapist from singing in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Pulled from cinemas <laughs> and not released again in the United Kingdom. Until the 2000s. Wow. This guy made a movie in 1971 and the Brits were like, pull that shit out of theaters. And you couldn't even, you couldn't rent this movie. No. You couldn't buy it until after he died. Wow. 
That's crazy. <laughs> okay, so so there's a, a couple of factoids here. Kubrick he deviates from his typical cinema scope presentation. He does the one point six six one aspect ratio, partially due to the treatment of Spartacus and two thousand and one in theaters. <clears throat> he feels. But he also made a conscious decision to, if you're not going to show my movie right, then I'm going to shoot it in a way that's like, basically, I'm going to dumb my movie down a little bit. But of course, he's a sicko. So he's like, so I'm going to shoot it as intimately as possible (laughs) so that you have to watch rape and torture torture and murder. Mm -hmm. And it's all going to be done with singing in the rain and happy songs and whistling and zippity doo dah oh. <laughs> and it's going to be as tight as possible and you're not going to be able to escape it <laughs> so this guy was so bent out of shape about the presentation of his films that he decided to make his nastiest movie to date and shoot it in the most intimate aspect ratio he possibly could this is a movie that, of course, you've heard about, right? Like, yes, there's yeah. no oh, no yeah. question about it. You've you've heard about this movie, and particularly the scene that I always remember is the singing in the rain scene. Yeah. Um and I and I remember thinking like, oh man, I don't know how dark that scene goes, but I hope it doesn't go all yeah, yeah that whole yeah. way. So yeah. I was happy when he was like cut it i'm like i don't know if there's a version of it with the full thing i really hope not (laughs) but you know it's cut at that moment so it's pretty much left up to you you know it happens that's all you need to know yeah uh so i was grateful for that but (laughs) this is uh the start of of uh stanley having an idea of a movie in the beginning and then yes coming to a completely different (laughs) place in the end and I love it. Like, and I mean, this is, we talked all about how dark Dr. Strangelove is. And that's a dark comedic movie. This is just a plain, full, dark movie. But the whole purpose of it is, really comes through in the end where you, you, we realize what he's actually getting after is, can governments affect your choices? You know what I'm saying? And should they, simply because of, you know, the type of people there are in the world? Should there be, you know, yeah. this sort of method for rapists, for for murderers, for, you know, drug dealers even, you know what I'm saying? Or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. and that's that's the whole point that he's getting to. Now you have to sit through some pretty rough stuff <laughs> to, <laughs> to get to that. But that's the idea. And like, you know. One of my favorite movies this year is a movie called Titan by uh, Julia DeCornau, oh, you know, yep. uh, Kane's Con's Palm, Palm Dior winner. And that's sort of the same, same idea is, you know, we have a lot of very gruesome, brutal things, very deeply uncomfortable things that happen in the beginning. But where we end is really the heart of the story and exactly what we're getting after. So, like, that's what I thought of, of A Clockwork Orange. It's very uh, brutal, but it has a message that I think is profound and then you take an unlikable character very unlikable character (laughs) and you sort of try to give them a redeemable arc but at the same time you're like there's no redeeming this character (laughs) like no matter how you slice it so 
I just thought so it was the, good. No, you're, you're spot on because the only real difference between the book and the, the, the final film is Kubrick decides to delete the last chapter of the book <laughs> where Alex actually does reform and is like, killing and murdering and raping is boring. I think I want to start a family. I really am changed. Mm -hmm. But maybe I shouldn't start a family because maybe my kids will be sociopaths. Right. So ultimately, he makes a moral decision not to reproduce, and he moves on to being a, a, a potentially a decent citizen. Ooh. Kubrick decides to end the story in this movie the chapter before, <laughs> which he's is he's envision, envisioning orgies and death yeah. and murder, yeah. even while he's like being lauded by the state as a success. <laughs> for look at this reformed criminal, and all he's thinking about is murdering the entire crowd <laughs> and raping them. <laughs> Yeah. Kubrick is like, that's where the movie is. That's where the movie that's the end. That's the end of the story. <laughs> is that this guy's not redeemed at all. Yeah, and I and but, I but here but here's what's weird, right? Mm -hmm. There still is that darkly absurd humor that's in the movie. Oh yeah. Alex goes through the entire thing. He gets he commits horrific acts. Yes. The government commits horrific acts against him. Mm-hmm. Then he goes back to his old life, and his old life commits hor horrific acts against him. Right. Which undoes what the government <laughs> tried to do to him. Right. Which makes him horrific again. again. <laughs> so really, like, in a way, you could say that this whole movie is about, like, recidivism. Right. Yeah. And, right? Yeah. And the idea, you know, and a lot of people, especially in that time, you know, prisons, the idea of prison being sort of a, a place for uh reforming yeah. citizens that whole idea i think is challenged in this movie because it's like okay if the prison system doesn't work and then we try more extreme methods uh measures yep. and that doesn't work you know what i'm saying yep. at some point where do we say like these people can't be changed they can't they're irredeemable and so right. then do, but then you, you have that question of, well, where does morals and the, where's the fine line for, for governments? Where's the fine line for individuals to say where this person's uh, life should end or begin or, yeah. or whether, you know, we should try to control them. Have they given up their essential right to humanity by doing the acts that they, that they commit? You know, obviously there's the moral argument. But then you have to look at it like, you know, if if reform doesn't work, then what other option is there? So, well, yeah, the, you have the chaplain. Right. He speaks up and he's like, this guy's not reformed. Right. You, you've just broken him. You've broken a part of his brain. Mm -hmm. He's not choosing to be moral. He's just now incapable of being evil. Right. So he's not actually good, because if you take away his ability to choose good, he's not reformed. Right. Yeah. And and the, the, the government's response is the minister's response for the government is like, this isn't about morality. <laughs> this is about good citizens. Right. He's, this is about the state. Yeah. And and those are both arguments that I can see both sides of. And and you know, and I and I think that's the beautiful part of this movie is like, okay, here's the, the challenge that uh Kubrick presents. 
and where do you fall? And then you see the rest of the movie and how it turns out. Because no matter what we say, you know, people go to prison, do your time, you know, so as long as you pay your debt to society, you'll be okay. But once those people are released, you know what I'm saying, the world is different. Their world is different. People have moved on from them. People still remember the crimes that they committed, so they want, you know, either revenge or more punishment for them. So, yeah, like, you know, the you could serve your time and potentially be reformed in prison. But if the world that you go into puts you back in those situations, then it starts it all over. People he abused as his gang members are the police by the time he gets out. Yeah. <laughs> and when they find him, they just beat the shit out of him. Yeah. <laughs> Which forces him to have to go back to the house of the woman he raped and killed. Mm-hmm. With her crippled husband, <laughs> who wants to help him because he's this, um, for lack of a better term, this uh, idealistic liberal, mm-hmm. right? And he's like, oh, you're, I don't, you know, I know. He doesn't remember that this is the guy who raped his wife and crippled him. Right. He just, he just knows this guy from the news. And is like, you poor, you're a victim of the state. Right. You're a victim of this, this broken criminal justice system. And he's going to use him for this social activism thing he's got going on. Until he starts singing, singing in the rain. Like an idiot. <laughs> like an idiot. And then he turns on him. Yeah. And is just as violent yeah. and just as vitriolic and just as vengeful and just as sociopathic. And that's what ends up breaking his brain, which makes him violent again. Speaking of which, one of my, one of my favorite shots in the movie. <laughs> like that underneath him shot where he's listening to him and he's like shaking i love that shot that's a fantastic shot (laughs) i think it's safe to say that malcolm mcdowell's performance here is basically the source code for every sociopath we've gotten in movies ever since yeah and i mean that's another he's the the joker right he's Heath Ledger's joker you could argue yes and i mean like uh that's part of the reason why they they had to ban it was there were people doing copycats of this movie uh and which is really sick, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like th- that's part of the reason why I had to be banned was just like people. I don't know what people were, were thinking in 1971. I don't know if they felt <laughs> that this, this glamorized that type of behavior. It certainly did not. And that's what happens if you only pay attention to the first half of the movie and not the end. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Because everybody he brutalizes in that first half to your point, mm-hmm. brutalizes him in the second half. Exactly. And yeah, nobody wins. And this is a very, uh, this is again, another movie that's not pro state, not pro police, not pro (laughs) (laughs) criminal justice. Um, I I've seen it. I've seen this movie multiple times and Mm. there are times where I can't finish it Yeah, because I've seen it multiple times. Mm -hmm. So I know where it ends, but there is something about the movie that feels a little dangerous. Yeah. I oh yeah 100% agree with that I mean like when you're watching that scene you're like how far is he gonna take this right I've seen that scene a dozen times half a dozen times whatever it may be Mm -hmm. and every time I'm like oh god he's gonna cut right because it does (laughs) it doesn't feel like he's going to no it doesn't (laughs) it really doesn't it's such a long scene too yeah and like and it's brutal brutal it's brutal it's one of those Yeah. yeah it's it's so hard to watch and yeah and like so like I get it if like you you know you've seen it dozens of times I feel like I will watch this movie two or three more times 
And that might be it. You're good. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah. the rest of my life. So like <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's just it's a great film and I love the commentary on it. It's just getting there is so brutal. <laughs> the only real downside I can think of the movie is that we've gotten twenty thousand lesser versions of this movie ever since. <laughs> because this is almost like funny games. Oh yeah. This is almost every independent horror movie that's been made. Yeah. In the last 50 years is that any it, any involving like uh uh home invasions oh yeah yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah reminder the animal purge has commenced for the next 12 hours all crime is legal emergency services will be suspended anybody tries to come in you blast them Everything is going to be okay. Nothing is going to be okay again. The Purge, rated R. And I guess this is the moment where you can argue he became the most influential uh, filmmaker of all time because, like you said, like there's been so many dumbed-down versions of this movie. Just taking that concept, and whether it's in different ways, whether it's a you know critical analysis of government interference or government control, or, you know, we're talking the horror or violence aspect of it. So, so many aspects of this movie have been taken and, and broken down and, and reused. And it's understandable. Like, it's a lot of material here. So, yeah, I get it. Between, he's got the one-two punch of 2001, and then he follows it up with this. And you're just like, at that point, it's like, this is the guy who influences everybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't get Star Wars without 2001. That is, that is 100% true. And we don't. We don't get very many shitty horror movies. Without a clockwork orange. You need it. So remind me again, what's your score? What's your rank? So uh, as much as I enjoyed this movie, <laughs> it is sitting at an 8.2 for me. It is third on my list. Uh, very much. I see the influence. I enjoyed this film. I see this, the, the, the meanings and the stories behind it. And it's a brilliant film. And it kind of upsets me because Singing in the Rain is one of my favorite all-time musicals. <laughs> so I'm like, how yep. dare you ruin that for me? <laughs> like, like, that is so mean, but yeah. For me, this is also my number three, and I'm not that far off from you. We truly are in a similar wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, it is an 8.0 out of 10. I, I had to remove a little bit because it is tough. Yeah. Also... I think the 70s are aesthetically the ugliest period <laughs> in human history. <laughs> oh, I, I, let me, are you talking about just like outfits or are you talking about like the way films were made in, entirely? Not so much movies. Right. I literally just mean human civilization. Oh, oh, yeah. 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 The clothes are hideous. The clothes are definitely hideous. <laughs> they, put, they put carpet on walls for some reason. <laughs> You're like what? All the it's, cars, everything. <laughs> yeah, everything's like the like puke green. <laughs> and you're like what? Yeah. It's puke green and gold. Yeah, that's it. They took they took the '70s aesthetic and they made the future '70s. Yeah. <laughs> and the '70s are ugly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know when we get movies in the '80s that are future '80s movies like Blade Runner and the Back to the Future Two and other movies, it's like. 
Okay, at least the 80s had neon. Right. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot more pinks in, in, yeah. in the 80s. Absolutely. A lot we more. Stop, we, we stopped putting carpet in the room. Right, yeah. We stopped putting, we stopped putting thick green carpet on walls with giant chandeliers <laughs> and plastic on furniture oh god it's so ugly it's so ugly. yeah yeah everything looks like it's made of asbestos 100 percent people stopped wearing organic materials <laughs> in the 70s right. everything's polyester and lycra and just weird so <laughs> So that's like a very, very stupid reason to dock this movie. <laughs> but the themes are ugly, right? And the 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 year in the, which this movie was made was also aesthetically ugly. Yes. So it makes it uh, not as enjoyable to get through. But <laughs> uh, so yeah, all right. That leaves us. We're we're, over, we're just burning through Stanley Kubrick. So. Yeah, I've spent more time talking about Freddy Krueger films. Than <laughs> Stanley I don't know what that says about me as a film critic, but uh, uh, let's move on to, wow, I can't believe it, 1987's Full Metal Jacket with a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. The best war movie ever made. J. Scott, Toronto Globe and Mail. Great filmmaking. I've seen it twice. Gene Siskel, Chicago Tribune. A bombshell. The flip side of Platoon. Susan Granger, WMCA Radio, New York City. Overpowers Platoon, Deer Hunter, and Apocalypse Now. Bobby Wygant, KXAS-TV, Dallas. Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Rated R. Bring it home on video cassette. This, of course, is directed and written by Stanley Kubrick. Michael Herr and Gustav Hosford also write it. It's based on the short timers by Gustav Hasford. This is the triumphant return of Matthew Modine, last seen in The Dark Knight Rises, <laughs> celebrating its 10th anniversary. And let me remind you, it stinks. It's the triumphant <laughs> return of Vincent D'Onofrio, last seen in Men in Black. It's a triumphant return of Arlie Emery, last seen in The Frighteners. This film was released June 26, 1987, on a budget of between 16 and $30 million. How do we not know? That's a big difference. <laughs> it made $120 million. The industrial military complex is on full display in a film where men become weapons of the state. I don't know, but I've been told this movie is freaking gold. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've made it here. You know what it is. This yeah. is my number one of Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. It is my <laughs> favorite movie on this list. It is amazeballs. <laughs> like, I, I, I remember because I watched, I watched this and A Clockwork Orange in the same night. Holy shit. <laughs> Talk about a double feature, bro. Like, oh my God. Like, and I finished the Clockwork Orange. I was like, do I really want to watch Full Metal Jacket? I mean, you have the true binge movies right. experience. I was like, oh. I love you. I love you, man. <laughs> and I'm like, and I turned it on, like, kind of reluctantly, like, oh, God. All right, here we go. And I turned it on, and I did not stop laughing for the first 40 minutes of this movie. <laughs> it, That's what's crazy. Yes. It is so funny. <laughs> like, the first 40 minutes of this movie is beyond. It's one, I mean, yeah. the the comedy is 
perfect. When I say perfect, there are a few movies that are perfect comedies. Okay, I consider Tropic Thunder a perfect comedy. Uh, Hot Tub Time Machine is a perfect comedy. <laughs> city Slickers is a perfect comedy. Yes, it is. Like, I join you in City yeah, Slickers. Yes, like, it is. Like this, yep. like for the first forty minutes, Full Metal Jacket is a perfect comedy. It is so darkly funny. Like it takes Doctor Strange Love and just goes a little bit higher. <laughs> like in terms of the co- comedy, bro, it's rich. I love it. it I can't get I, enough of it. My first note is that the first eight minutes are hypnotic, funny, and the greatest character introductions <laughs> in the history of any movie ever made. Yes. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, sir yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. If you ladies leave my island, if you survive recruit training, you will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death praying for war. But until that day, you are pukes. You are the lowest form of life on earth. You are not even human fucking beings. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit. Because I am hard, you will not like me. But the more you hate me, the more you will learn. I am hard, but I am fair. There is no racial bigotry here. I do not look down on <laughs> wops or greasers. Here you are all equally worthless. And my orders are to weed out all non-hackers who do not pack the gear to serve in my beloved car. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sir, yes, sir. What's your name, scumbag? Sir, Private Brown, sir! Bullshit, from now on, you're Private Snowball. Do you like that name? Sir, yes, sir! Well, there's one thing that you won't like, Private Snowball. They don't serve fried chicken and watermelon on a daily basis in my mess hall. Sir, yes, sir! That you, John Wayne? Is this me? Who said that? Who the fuck said that? Who's the slimy little comet of shit twinkle toad cocksucker down here who just signed his own death warrant? Nobody, huh? The very fucking godmother said it. I'm fucking standing. I will PT you all until you fucking die. I'll PT you until your assholes are sucking buttermilk. Was it you, you scroungy little fuck, huh? Sir, no, sir. You little piece of shit, you look like a fucking worm. I bet it was you. Sir, no, sir. Sir, I said it, sir. Well, no shit. What have we got here? A fucking comedian, private joker. I admire your honesty. Hell, I like you. You can come over to my house and fuck my sister. <clears throat> you little scumbag. I got your name. I got your ass. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. You had best unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and shut down your neck. Sir, yes, sir. Private Joker, why did you join my beloved corps? Sir, to kill, sir. So you're a killer? Sir, yes, sir. Let me see your war face. Sir? You got a war face? Ah! That's a war face. Now let me see your war face. Ah! Bullshit. You didn't convince me. Let me see your real war face. Ah! You don't scare me. Work on it. Sir, yes, sir. What's your excuse? Sir, 
excuse for what, sir? I'm asking the fucking questions here, Private. Do you understand? Sir, yes, sir. Well, thank you very much. Can I be in charge for a while? Sir, yes, sir. Are you shook up? Are you nervous? Sir, I am, sir. Do I make you nervous? Sir. Sir, what? Are you about to call me an asshole? Sir, no, sir. How tall are you, Private? Sir, five foot nine, sir. Five foot nine? I didn't know they stacked shit that high. You trying to squeeze an inch in on me somewhere, huh? Sir, no, sir! Bullshit, it looks to me like the best part of you ran down to crack your mama's ass and ended up as a brown stain on the mattress. I think you've been cheated. Where in hell are you from anyway, Private? Sir, Texas, sir! Holy dog shit, Texas, only steers and queers come from Texas, Private Cowboy. And you don't much look like a steer to me, so that kind of narrows it down. Do you suck dicks? Sir, no, sir! Are you a Peter Pupper? Sir, no, sir! I bet you're the kind of guy that would fuck a person in the ass and not even have the goddamn common courtesy to give him a reach around. I'll be watching you. R. Lee Emery goes on an almost uninterrupted monologue mm-hmm. for eight straight minutes where he insults these people in ways. I mean, he is an artist yes <laughs> in shit talking oh man <laughs> that's so much so that some of these insults have now just become part of insult culture <laughs> when he's asking people did your mother have any children that live <laughs> oh my and, god <laughs> and like some of his takedowns oh. are so intricate you actually have to stop and it's like an <laughs> insult comic you have to stop and think Oh yeah. shit! Yeah, right? Arlie Emery ran, uh, walked so that J.K. Simmons could run. I mean, yes! like yes! everything about yes. this is brutal takedown. I mean, yes. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> like, yes. like I said, I could not stop laughing. I, I like. I went to work the next day quoting everything from this movie. <laughs> like, and you didn't get fired? Oh no, I did get fired. Totally got fired. But. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's an HR violation and a half. Oh my friend. god, so much, man. I mean, I I love this movie, bro. Like, like just the uh, uh, I I I want to repeat them, but they're so bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're yeah. so bad. Yeah. Like, yeah. if you have not seen this movie, man, check it out. If for no other reason, just the first forty minutes. Like, if you want to be canceled. <laughs> Tweet anything Arlie ever says <laughs> up into the moment he's killed. Literally up into the moment he dies. Yeah. He's insulting this guy. <laughs> oh, man. And can we talk about Vincent D'Onofrio, who is man. just absolutely creepy, sympathetic, sad. You go the. I went the full spectrum mm. with this guy. Private Pile. And I've seen this movie a bunch too. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel sympathy for him, and then when they're beating his ass with soap, man, you're like, you're like, yeah, fuck that guy. I know. I felt it was <laughs> like you feel bad. It was like, like the weirdest. What's wrong with me? Right, it was the weirdest emotion because of like. I'm like, all right, man. Like, obviously, this dude's not, he's not built for this, right? He's not yes. built for this. He should yeah. really just quit and leave. Yes. And, yes. But then he starts doing ignorant stuff, like ridiculous yes. stuff. And, like, by the time they start wailing on him with the, with, with the so- soap, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, 
Oh well. <laughs> and then you're, you're then you're like, what has happened to me? Right. And the, and the the last thirty minutes that I was like, yeah, just leave, buddy. Oh, this poor guy, right. just leave. To where you're like, yeah, yeah. You you're almost going to your bathroom and putting <laughs> soap in a sock. You what? you want to get a like, couple of hits oh, in? You're man. like, God dang it. Because I know, like, I have members of my family who are Marines, and like you know, they talk about boot camp. Boot yeah. camp is no joke. <laughs> like right. it's no joke whatsoever. Whether you're <clears throat> Marines, Army, Navy, doesn't matter. It, it's yeah. no joke, right? Yeah. And I can only imagine if someone was causing you more <laughs> work, more stress, more pain than you're already receiving just for your normal basic training. While he's being fed donuts. While he gets to eat donut out it. Come on. <laughs> Like, I'm like, and you know, he's up for like a few more minutes crying. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> like, you take yeah. that. You shut up and take it because that's what you get. <laughs> and then it gets scary. Oh, yeah. Because it, it works to the point where it breaks him. Yeah. And then he becomes a good soldier. Right. He knows the regs. He knows the movements. Mm -hmm. He knows the marches. He becomes like a fucking sharpshooter all of a sudden. Right. And and all of a sudden, he's the model soldier. Mm. Which tells you everything Stanley Kubrick <laughs> thinks about the military. Yes. Yes. Which is you have to break someone's humanity to make them a soldier. Yeah. And I mean, and he very clearly is, is stating that, you know, that loss of humanity is is what drives him to do what he ultimately ends up doing killing Arlie Emery and and then committing suicide himself is like you just you know you, you know that you're lost that that's it you you're you're lost this isn't for you you've lost a part of yourself probably a part of yourself that you really enjoyed and you can never get it back and you did all of this for what for your yep. for you know country for salvation for for whatever reason and that loss drives him to madness. And it's it in in one way you could argue this is totally Stanley Kubrick saying this is what I think of of the military. <laughs> in the most harshest terms possible. Well, what we see with Pyle, Private Pyle, in that first half of the film, we see with everybody in the second half of the yes. film. It goes from the personal of this just this one guy's story. The breaking, the madness, the loss of humanity, the corruption of the soul, the death, the whatever. It goes from one guy to, by the end of this, it's everybody yeah. on both sides. Yeah. On the Viet Cong side, on the U.S. side, the inhumanity of everybody, including Joker. Mm -hmm. And including all of these people who... Matthew Modine's character has spent most of his time not in combat. Right. He's still a piece of shit. Right. <laughs> right? They're itching. They're they're itching to kill. They're itching to get out there and to be killers and to be murderers. And they're laughing and they're cracking jokes. And they've got they're they're, they're doing sight gags with corpses. Right. Uh. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and you're yeah. like, they're all piles. Every last one of them right. has become a private pile. Absolutely. A lot of people really didn't get that. 
They they really didn't understand and reconcile the two sides of this movie because you have such high humor in the first 40 minutes. And, you know, it's a really great, perfect comedy, like I said. And then the second half of the movie is a really dramatic, it's like a high come down from whatever you were on on the first few, few minutes to this like dark, really destructive deconstruction of hum humanity and man in war. Like part of the reason why this is my number one is that this gave me more appreciation for my number five. <laughs> like, like uh. as as a way of like you know coming back around to to his very first film, and and basically being in an a uh, a takedown of war and what it does to the to the man. You could tell that whatever he was reaching for in fear and desire, he totally nailed in in Full Metal Jacket. He's still throwing them. He's got the the bird bird bird. He's still throwing in the off kilter music. He's got it's all the Kubrick touches. Yes. And historically, I've been one of those people. It's like I love the first forty five minutes. You could get rid of the rest of the movie. It doesn't work for me. Right. Yeah. You know because all it was to me, but especially when I was younger, all it was to me was that quote. I think Two Live Crew pulled right. Wasn't it Two Live Crew? <laughs> You pull it like, oh, me so horny. Yeah, love yeah. You long time. me love you a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so as I'm like 14 <laughs> watching this, I heard that on the radio <laughs> or in my cousin's car right. before I ever saw this movie. And I'm a 14-year-old. Right. And so I'm laughing. And then when you really think about it, boy, this is not funny. No, this is dark stuff. Like, And I felt so bad, too, because it was like, I'm like, I had heard, you know what I'm saying? You talk about like being, um, whether you've seen the movie or not, just, you know, being absorbed in the culture, you'll come across yeah. stuff. I've heard that Asian Vietnamese stereotype my entire yep. life. The whole, yep. you know, me love you a long time, sucky, sucky, five dollar. I'm like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like so freaking racist. I'm like, oh my God, that's terrible. And then th to find out this is the movie where it originated from. Yep. And 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 what it meant in that in that period, yep. I'm like, oh, that's oh, that's foul. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, and then then guys refusing to pay the full fifteen dollars. Really, fifteen dollars? Really? <laughs> like, like, I'm like, oh man, it was just it was brutal. But like, again, it just you know, no one really thinks about what an occupation means when 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 you're talking about war. An occupation means that those guys who go to war live and stay in that area and they occupy it, which means they are enemies of of the people there. Like like you see, you know, it's a major city, so we have to assault with uh, tanks. We roll in, roll in the streets, so uh, they send us in first a squad, make sure that there are no, uh, no little... Uh, no Vietnamese waiting with the B-40 rockets to blow the tanks away. So we clear it out and we roll the tanks in, basically blow the place to hell. When we're in Hue, when we're in Hue City, it's like a war, you know? Like what 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 I thought what I thought about a war, what I thought a war was supposed you know was supposed to be. Um, there's the enemy, kill him. Well, I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, we're the best. I mean, all that bullshit about the Air Cav. When the shit really hits the fan, who do they call? They call Mother Green and her killing machine. Do I think America belongs in Vietnam? Um, 
I don't know. I belong in Vietnam. I'll tell you that. Can I quote LBJ? I will not send American boys eight or ten thousand miles around the world to do a job that Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. They they believe that they're liberators, right? That's the idea. They're liberators, but really, you are occupying another person's country. You are an invader. You know, in just a simple scene, Kubrick was able to explain that that feeling of of what that means, and and I just thought I think it's brilliant. When the documentary crew shows up, Kubrick's camera behind the documentary crew that's in the movie, right? And they're both panning at the same time. Yeah. So we have the film's perspective, which is tracking with the, the documentary crew who are tracking <laughs> the real war. I was like, this guy might be the greatest director <laughs> in 1987. Right, right. Right? Like, that's a shot I don't know that many people could pull off today. No. Like, it's really impressive. Where, where shit is blowing up in the, in the background. Right. And there's war. There's the camera. And then there's the documentary in the foreground. <laughs> and then when they cut to all of the talking heads of oh the soldiers, that, that's, the platoon. That's got to be doing one of the, my favorite parts. <laughs> doing the documentary. It's funny. Right. It's as funny as like The Office or Parks and Rec or yeah. any of those other faux documentaries, but it also just shows you like these guys don't even know why they're here. No, so half of they're, them don't care. <laughs> they don't care. Right? If they did know, they're they're gone mentally. Yeah. They're morally adrift. Their spirits are broken. And that's and that's why we get what we get in the first right because yes. you see yep. you know yeah it's all that humor but what it really is is the the humanity really leaving these guys to the point yes. where when you're when they're finally in the shit as they say you know what i'm saying like it's it's blackness you know what i'm saying like it's pure blackness and it's yeah. like they say things that i'm like like if if a normal person said that to you you'd be like what <laughs> like but that's yeah. that's just how they think now it's almost a replay and an extrapolation of the theme from that first 45 minutes, like you were saying. Absolutely. And so when Matthew Modine's like, oh, and the other guy especially is like, I want to get in the shit, man. I want to see the shit. I want to see the shit. And then you see by the end of that movie, they do, they get the Viet Cong sniper. And it turns out to be a woman. Mm -hmm. And she's fatally wounded, but she's suffering. She's not dead. She's, it's a mortal wound, but she's just bleeding out very slowly. Mm-hmm. And they're like, fuck her, leave her. <laughs> she left our guys, just leave her. Right. And Joker's like, we can't leave her. And they're like, then you put her down. Right. And that is got, it's like the last flicker of his humanity. Gone. <laughs> Gone. And you watch the light go right and out of his And it's, again, talk about a brilliant shot. Like, yep. I mean, because he holds it on them. They talked about it earlier about, you know, the stare, how he didn't have the stare. Which is, yep. you know, a guy who's seen too much. And basically, when he gets to that point, he blacks yep. out. And that's what you saw. You saw his humanity leave and the blackness just come right in. And it's shot so beautiful. Like, it's and how, beautiful. And how shot. fucking ignorant and stupid these guys are who are like, I want that. I want the thousand yard stare. Right. It's like, yeah. you don't. don't. You, you really you don't. don't. Yeah. <laughs> because you have to live with that for the rest of your life. Yeah. 
this was the first time I've watched the movie all the way through where I enjoyed the second half, not quite as first as that first 45 minutes, mm-hmm. but where it worked for me probably the best it ever has. Yeah. And the only thing that diminishes it to me from it not being my number one, because it obviously isn't, <laughs> is I think Matthew Modine gives one of the worst voiceovers I've ever heard. <laughs> It's terrible. <laughs> oh, man. I would argue, yeah, I agree with that. Like, you know, it's not the best, especially coming off of a clockwork orange. You're like, come on, dude. Like, you could do much better than that. And the thing is, it's not. A lot of times with voiceover, you're like, well, the script for the voiceover is terrible. The script for the voiceover is not terrible. <laughs> Matthew Modine is terrible. <laughs> the guy doing the voiceover is terrible. And honestly, I think he's the worst part of the movie. Mm. I think Modine as Private Joker is the weakest. Even the non-Baldwin Baldwin that's in this movie ah, ah, ah. That's is, is really good. <laughs> right? Everybody is so good in this movie, except for Matthew and, Modine. And it's bizarre. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not even arguing that, but I think that's kind of on purpose, right? Like, Okay, talk to me like, about that. I think he's purposefully presented as one of the because one of the weaker characters uh particularly in the second half of the movie because in the first half of the movie he's actually one of the best right he's one of the best uh recruits you know what i'm saying he's the one that they put in uh private pile in charge of um so he seems very capable but it's once he gets into the field where he's no longer you know he's not an infantry guy he's not a combat guy he's a journalist you know what i'm saying and it's like it's like really like you know what i'm saying so like you don't really want this you know what i'm saying it's one of those things that like you know you purposely chose something weaker than than what you what what you've been trained to do essentially so yeah like like i said i think not necessarily the actor, because I do think that he his acting is probably also still the weakest of the movie, but it doesn't hurt the movie. But I think he's uh, purposefully a weak character simply because of of where the story wants him to be, because he's got to be that vehicle for what the transformation of war is. Got you. Yeah. 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 I, I'm 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 with you. I'm in agreement with you about what the character is doing. Mm-hmm. I still think he's the drizzling shit. As a, as an and you know what I mean by drizzling shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So this is your number one. Yes. You've given some high scores. You've given some low scores. Yes. This has got to be the highest of the highs. So what would you give this at a 10? This is my... 10 out of 10 this is this is a perfect film like wow this is a film a lot of people talk about just you know watching the first 45 minutes i could watch the entirety of this movie right now (laughs) like i think it's so (laughs) so brilliant i truly do i think it from top to bottom it's just a brilliant takedown evisceration really of war and what it does to the mind, what it does to the body, what it does to the soul. And and I think it's so reflective of of current times. I think it's I think as a filmmaker you see the brilliance of Stanley Kubrick from beginning to end. 
I I can't. The performances are great. Arlie Emery is an all timer. Vincent D'Onofrio. I mean, come on. Like, yeah, yeah. Brung it in ways that I didn't even expect. Um, yeah. To me, it's top tier. Uh, like, I still haven't seen 2001. I still haven't seen The Shining. I still haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut. And I still believe wholeheartedly this will be my favorite Kubrick film. Wow. Yes. That is high, high praise. Yes. <laughs> I'm just behind you <laughs> with a nine out of 10. Yes. It's my number two for the week. There's just something about Dr. Strangelove that just worked. <laughs> to me, it's, it's a, it's, it's an insane film. Yes. And it's, 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 I share a sensibility with the movie. Let's just put it like that. I, I, listen, I'm, I'm not even arguing with you. I, could, I totally can see it. It's perfectly yeah. fine. All right. It is time for a recap. Coming in dead last for me is Fear and Desire, 6 out of 10. Coming in number four is Spartacus, 7 out of 10. Still a really good movie, but compared to the rest of these, it just doesn't quite. It's not the Kubrick we want. Right. Uh, Coming in number three. It's the 70s. It's ugly in more ways than one. It's a clockwork orange, 8 out of 10. Really close to being the top of the week, which was a surprise for me, but it just fell short of being added to the short list is Full Metal Jacket, 9 out of 10, and being officially added as my next and final entry onto the short list. It's Dr. Strangelove, which I give a perfect 10 out of 10. What's your recap, Phoenix? All right. My recap coming in uh, astonishingly low at five <laughs> is Fear and Desire, three out of ten. Uh, coming in at number four, I agree with everything you said. It's great. It's just not as great as everything else on this list. Spartacus with an eight out of ten. Coming in at number three, just shy at an 8.2. It is a clockwork orange. Uh, follow that up. We are switched with our one and twos. Uh, Dr. Strangelove coming in at number two with an 8.5. And my number one, which I think is the greatest Stanley Kubrick film ever made, even without seeing the rest of his work, <laughs> Full Metal Jacket coming in at number one, a full 10 out of 10. If out of the five films you watched this week, you had to give a recommendation, it doesn't have to be Full Metal Jacket, but if you, it, it can be, but if you had to give a recommendation, what is your recommendation of the week? <laughs> It's Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> it's definitely Full Metal Jacket. I'm sorry. <laughs> it has to well, be. you're going to be a homer for Full Metal Jacket. I'm going to be a homer for Dr. Strangelove. We're sticking with our picks this week. Uh, you can't really go wrong with either one of those movies. No. Just please know, have a have an idea of what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> I, listen, I, I recommend doing it this way. Like, going mm. through... A person's film uh, filmography uh, chronologically yeah, yeah chronologically and especially for a filmmaker that you're not familiar with because i mean you get to learn so much about their style and what they do uh differently than everybody else this was the best way to do it and I, I don't even think i would have had this great of appreciation for full metal jacket if i hadn't done it this way so All right, Phoenix, this has been a heck of a conversation. We've had to go through hell and high water to get here. We've yeah. had technical issues while doing it. <laughs> Hopefully, the record button has stayed on. Right. If it hasn't, we'll do it again because it was that much fun. <laughs> uh, where can we, the fine folks at home find you? What are you up to? What are you doing? 
Get all of your officials out there. Where are you at on social media, et cetera, et cetera. All right. You guys can find me on Twitter at uh, IMHO Reviews 1. That's the number one. And uh, on Letterboxd, where I log all my films under PA Cloudin. Uh, you guys can find my show, uh, the Film Code Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Film Code Pod. Uh, we are everywhere you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys are at. We are really big in India for some strange reason. So <laughs> shout out India. Love you guys. <laughs> there you go. And uh, yeah, and that's where you can find me. Please support this guy. Find his podcast and Apple Podcasts. Leave it a five-star review. Don't even listen to it. Just give it five <laughs> stars. If you do listen to it and you love it, write a review too. That really helps up independent podcasts like us uh i really appreciate it i hope to have you back on in the future and oh, yeah. let me know if there's anything that we here at binge movies can do for you we'd love to support what you got going on my friend uh, thank you man i appreciate it this was a lot of fun and i love your show thank you so All much right. well thank you let's do it again yeah and of course binge lords you know what it is until next time binge on